Jessica needs some anger management. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to BraintreePayments.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free, continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 209 of Ruby Rogues. Today on the panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avdi Graham. Hello from Tennessee. And me, Coraline Ada MK. Our guest this week is Julian Scheel. Julian, would you like to introduce yourself? What ho? Yes, I'm uh, Julian Scheel, and I don't really know much about anything that we're going to be talking about today, so that's going to be fun. That makes you the perfect guest, doesn't it? Yes, I will try my best. I understand you like to play with robots and drones. Yeah, so it started off as like a little hobby, but I don't know if it's still a hobby when it takes over all of your life and doesn't leave much room for work and everything else. What initially drove you to get interested in it? Like most people, I had an Arduino uh, once my birthday that I played with a few times of the examples, and then I just put it in the back of my cupboard and, and never really touched it again. But then playing with the AR drone, doing the NodeCopter events, which is a sort of JavaScript hack day where you can program flying robots with JavaScript, that got me really excited that, wow, you can actually program some cool things in robotics, which I found really fun. Talk about those node hacking events. What are those like? So imagine the scenario you've got maybe 15 to 20 flying robots controlled with JavaScript by people that don't know what they're doing in terms of robotics or often programming. And so as you can imagine, the room is full of chaos, but everyone is having so much fun. And they all start the day in the same way that they're not really sure how to program or 
how to fly robots. And by the end of it, everyone's giving demos, and even the really shy people are sort of showing what they've managed to achieve in a day. Is JavaScript well suited to controlling drones and robots? So JavaScript is pretty cool for that because you can sort of fire off events and, I mean, my JavaScript knowledge is very limited, but you can fire off events and just hope that they work, which works well controlling the drones because it all works in uh, UDP. So sometimes you do end up with random Ethernet packets flying in the ether controlling the drones autonomously, which leads to some fun and excitement. So Julian, what's it like uh, bringing drones through U.S. Customs? So apart from the strain, so one time I went through the, it was like the last checkout point where you have, you hand in your card and the lady asked what they were and I explained, oh, these are flying robots because I never used the word drone. And, and she's like, and what do you plan to do with those? It's like, play with them. And she gave me some very dirty looks. <laughs> but I think the worst is, because it's not just drones that I play with, I've got a whole host of other robotics and when I was, they were going through my luggage one time, having to explain all of the different pieces of hardware and why I have them was quite fun. Does your luggage yeah, start spontaneously change. buzzing ever? No, I make sure that nothing is connected and the batteries are far, far away from the things that they're connected to. They're all just jealous of your toys. Was U.S. Customs the worst for um, traveling with robots? Have you brought them other places? Um, so I've just returned from Italy and Hungary. I've done just done two talks there and... They were fine with it all. They didn't ask me anything about what was in my luggage, so that was good. I'm a little familiar with your work with drones. I've watched some of your talks and seen you play with drones, but you just mentioned that you have a lot of other robots that you're playing with, and I'm curious about some of those. Yeah, so I've kind of been gathering over the last couple of years a little collection of things, and so most of it, they're all microcontrollers. So I have a whole host of Arduinos. For those of you who don't know an Arduino, it's tiny little microcontroller that you would normally run C to write your programs, and you can use it to blink on an LED on and off. But the cool thing is that you can run a piece of firmware on there called Formata, which basically turns every pin into an API, which we can then control via Ruby or JavaScript or Go. And the great thing about that is that you can control all sorts of different bits of hardware. So things in my little collection that I have are uh, a Tessel, which can actually run JavaScript on itself. Raspberry Pi, uh, BeagleBone Black, which is like a Raspberry Pi, just more beefier, and uh, various other sorts of things. What can you do with those API pens? You said that every pin on the Arduino is an a- oh. uh, API endpoint, essentially. What, what do you do with them? My favorite thing, uh, if you've ever seen one of my talks, is just turning an LED on and off, which is super fun, because that way I, I think you can now program like 90% of the hardware out there by just turning something on and off. So one of the demos I built recently was I connected a sonar sensor to the Arduino so that it could detect distance. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, so I had a a great idea for a demo in which an AR drone would be flying along with a little grabber and would release an angry bird, and that would drop down onto one of the bad piggies, which had a sonar detector on its head, and so I'd be able to detect how close the bird was to the pig and detect an impact, and therefore being able to create my own version of Angry Drones. Did it work? So, like all good programmers, I tested each single thing individually, all except for the fact that my drone couldn't actually lift up the Angry Bird. (laughs) So, we know that it's hard enough giving demos when you're doing software projects, and I imagine it's much harder for hardware projects. 
Yeah, so in my talks last week, I did have a few fails, uh, like this one, for instance, where I just had to get the audience to imagine what would have happened had it all worked. And someone points out to me that most of the time in a, in a talk, when someone has a live demo, they always have a, here's what I prepared earlier, like a screencast or, or just some pictures, but uh, an, an LED sort of blinking on and off or some music playing because you've pressed the button, you know, that, that kind of thing isn't as interesting if it's all pre-done. So I do get a few failures in my talks, but I think that's kind of part of the fun to show how volatile this stuff can be. Totally subject to the whims of the demo gods. What's the worst demo experience you've ever done? I think one of them was last week where I didn't have the head microphone, so my friend had to hold a handheld mic in front of me so I could fiddle with all the wires, and things just kept going more and more wrong. But the conference talk did end with a high, though. I've built a cocktail robot to make uh, cocktails, and so I was able to make a spritz, which is a northern Italian favorite. So that was quite fun. Oh, my God. I must have this robot. It can be yours for just five installments of nine ninety nine. What goes into a robot like that? What is what is it made out of? I used, as this was a JavaScript conference, I used Cylon.js, which is a framework created by the same people that created R2, which is the Ruby version, and GoBot, which is the Go version. And that was controlling the uh, motors, which were connected to some pumps, some peristaltic pumps, I think they're pronounced, a bit like you'd have in a dialysis machine. Hmm. So they sort of and squeeze? Yeah, they squeeze the liquid through, and you can measure the amount of time that you want it to to get a certain amount. And obviously, being from the land of over-engineering things, I made it where you could control it by sending MQTT packages. So it could be, you know, the other side of the internet and you just send the request and then it turns on the exact pumps, pumps them through into the glass and, hey, here's a drink. What is MQTT? It's a great little protocol. I think it was made by IBM originally for just sort of uh, sending, it's like a publish and subscribe protocol, but it's got really, really small form factor, so it tends to be used a lot for embedded devices and this internet of stuff and things. So you've uh, you've raised the internet of stuff and things. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of where we're going with that? Hopefully hoverboards should be available before October this year. <laughs> oh, if you have distance centers and you can turn on an LED, then you could use the distance centers to look at the ground and turn on the jetpacks. Exactly. That's the kind of thinking that gets me up in the mornings and then creates some crazy demos. But so I really don't like the phrase Internet of Things because it just normally means an Internet connection on something completely useless that the world doesn't need and it's yet another product. Why should your fridge be Internet connected? Because like, it could tell you you've run out of eggs, but it probably doesn't know that you stopped eating eggs months ago due to dietary requirements or something. So now we're into machine learning. Yes, yes, just what we need, more in notifications about things we don't care about. So what do you like, Julian? Some of my favorite things at the moment, and, and the cool thing is, you can build all of this stuff at home, and I like that developer mindset. Obviously, there's the huge caveat that, you know, if you build it at home, it's not going to be enterprise-ready. But things I like are um, thermostat controllers that you can, you know, read the temperature of your rooms in your houses and get that to control your smart thermostat like a nest or turning on light switches via your phone so you can make sure if you're away from your house you can keep the lights on and off to ward against would-be thieves and such 
What about the dark side of the Internet of Things? Is it scary at all? When there's no electricity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about security. <laughs> More blinking LEDs. That'll totally fix the darkness problem. Yeah, security's, again, not a security expert. Security's one of those things that, if you look at a lot of the off-the-shelf internet-connected things like light bulbs or smart fridges and dishwashers and all these kinds of things, they all rely on being on your home Wi-Fi network, which is obviously secured by a password. What could but, possibly go wrong? Yeah, it's not as if your friends would think, wouldn't it be funny if I turned on all your lights when you weren't there or unlocked your front door? <laughs> <laughs> my friends would totally think that was funny and they would have my wi-fi password and so some some of the frameworks have got the ability to add like an oauth key in them to kind of then do a more secure authentication between the user of the devices but this isn't kind of out of the box because we're talking about you know small little microcontrollers that aren't super powerful so it's 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 a harder thing to do but there are devices out there that you can buy that do that and frameworks are starting to build this in. I want to talk a little bit about programming languages. Uh, you've mentioned that you've done robot programming in at least uh, Ruby and JavaScript. Uh, what is the full list of languages that you've used to program robots? So I've done uh, Ruby, JavaScript, and then a tiny little bit of Go. Okay. Do you have a favorite? Obviously Ruby, because I'm on the Ruby Rogues podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But seriously, like, is there one that like feels better for this kind of programming? Yeah, and I have to give it to JavaScript to win this one. Um, two reasons. Mainly the JavaScript community is really, really behind robotics. And then they coined the term um, NodeBot for, for starters. You know, we don't have a RubyBots movement going around the world having an international RubyBots day, whereas the NodeBots community does. And also the kind of just callback, fire and forget, at least that's the way I do JavaScript, nature of it lends itself to sort of sending messages to devices and kind of hoping information comes back mm -hmm. that we just don't tend to do in the Ruby world as much. Are there some good tools there for doing things with like feedback loops and making sure that you don't over control? Like if there are tools there already I, that help you to avoid like feedback loops where, where you, you know, something starts oscillating back and forth or something like that. Are there tools for that or do you wind up rolling your own? I tend to sort of uh, roll my own. So like, if you've connected up a button to a microcontroller that then you're controlling with Ruby or JavaScript, you can kind of sense when the button's being pressed or not pressed, but the kind of logic is up to you then. Either you kind of add in a few more bits of hardware, which then would you'd have to up your hardware knowledge to kind of clean that data up, or as I've done, just kind of clean it out in, in the code. Hmm which I'm not always successful at that, so I did manage to crash my machine last week when I was trying to start and stop uh, Spotify with a kind of party button, and I ended up just sending far too many requests to Spotify. A party button? That sounds great. What Instant else party? does it do? It can do whatever you want. This is the great thing about adding software to hardware. <laughs> so it's It could send out a Facebook invite. To all of your friends, whether you want it to or not. Exactly. And it could turn the lights off and blink some LEDs. It sounds like a party. And all we need now is a party cannon. No, a disco ball. Oh, I have one of those. I assume it is robotically controlled? Yes, of kind course. of. It doesn't always work. Unfortunately, the uh, protocol to speak to disco balls and smog machines is not the greatest in the world. You need a special device to do that, and so mine keep breaking. 
unfortunately. Is that protocol written in the 70s? Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> it's based protocol. on, like most good protocols, the MIDI protocol, which, as all of you know, is the greatest protocol ever. I actually don't know a lot about it, but I, that, I hadn't even thought about the fact that, yeah, I guess all of those devices must have a control protocol because they have to do choreographed stage shows. Julian, were you serious about the MIDI protocol being the best ever, or was that no. sarcasm? Okay, it was sarcasm. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have that context. What's the tragedy there? Well, it's just, it's, so if you dive into it, it's just sending, I guess, just byte codes everywhere, which is fine, but it just doesn't feel modern and stable. Like, we keep hacking more stuff into it to get it to work for a lot of the, these devices that we're using these days. So I'm sure it's fine for a proprietary off-the-shelf sort of light controller for a whole stage show, but when you're trying to use those kind of protocols to switch lights on and off on a, on a few microcontrollers and doesn't seem to work you know you've, you've really got to dig down into a protocol that you'd be really unfamiliar with what makes a good protocol i don't know about for the low level things something that's nice and simple that you can kind of so a chap called chris williams who is a javascripter he wrote a new firmware for something called a spark core which is an internet connected arduino clone and he wrote a new protocol for that which i quite like because it's even though I don't understand it all, I was able to sort of start at the top of the file, get down to the bottom, and kind of have a general gist of what was going on. So that was all written in C. I'm just curious what the specific programming challenges are around, like, sort of hardware hacking. You talked about events. I'm wondering if, like, for example, concurrency is something you have to struggle with or, you know, other sort of programming paradigms that are more important in hardware hacking than maybe in web development. Yeah, so this kind of ties into the, you know, Ruby or JavaScript for robotics is that JavaScript kind of just, does, well, Node.js, I guess, specifically does help with that concurrency, even able to control multiple things at once. But the cool thing is with the Ruby library, R2, is that they built that on top of Celluloid, which is an amazing library for doing sort of actor-based concurrency to be able to do multiple things at once. But it's, it's not a, this doesn't make it simple for a, a new person to pick up and dive straight into. It definitely took me months and months and months of reading the source code going, I have no idea what's going on here, even though I could see the output, which was, you know, my lights switching on or house turning off or something like that. And so it's definitely a complex protocol, but once you kind of get to grasp with it, it's really re rewarding. But I wouldn't say the average person needs to know about all of that out of the box. Would you say there's a high or low barrier to entry in this sort of hacking? So because of the amazing work of all of the R2 contributors and just the sheer fun of being able to program how to turn an LED on or off, I think it's definitely a low barrier. So an example of that, I have a friend and she's new to programming. Uh, she did a you know a few Rails Girls events and... I showed her, hey, here's how we turn some LEDs on and off with 16 lines of, of Ruby. And then the next time I see her, she's been to Micromart, bought herself an Arduino starter kit, and has now gone off doing all sorts of fun little things, even though she had no idea what she was doing. That's pretty awesome. I found um, when my daughter was young, we played a lot with Arduinos, and I gave her, you know, we did a lot of things together, like turning the LEDs on and off. And I ended up giving her a programming assignment and leaving her to it to essentially make the Cylon 
you know, sweeping LED back and forth. And she really enjoyed it. And I think there's something about the feedback you get from hardware that is more appealing somehow or more satisfying somehow. And I think can really encourage exploration and learning. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, once, once it all works, just seeing that little light or thing turn on is amazing. I was trying to teach my nephews who are six and not six programming. And we were using, I've got a PlayStation 2 dance mat. And um, so we were using that to control uh, music in the house. And they had so much fun. I think they might have had more fun jumping up and down on the dance mat. But they could see that from the like crazy words that we wrote on the screen, you know, music was happening in the house, which you, you wouldn't get with, you know, Pot's Hello World, I don't think. So speaking of getting kids into this, I have some young children. I'm curious. What's your recommendation for both hardware and software? Like, where's a good place to get started if you want to get kids into physical programming? So I think Ruby is perfect for this. And I do believe that Kids Ruby now has support for R2, or it will do in the future. So Ruby is definitely, I think, the easiest language to get kids into this kind of thing. And as far as hardware goes, your basic Arduino starter kit is really good because my nephew, the youngest one, I think he's four. Uh, he was following along with me. You know, he'd done the basics in school of the circuit where the electricity goes in one end and comes out the other and then a light switch is on. And so we did that and we followed along, putting the pin, uh, the LEDs and the resistors into the breadboard. And he was having a whale of the time. So I think things that switch on and off, like lights, would be a great start. And there's also something called a, a Zumo robot, which is a kit that you buy with motors and it drives around. And so that's a fun thing because then you can make a little web page that says, you know, go forward, go back and do all those kind of fun things with them. But do they turn LEDs on and off? I know, right? That's the bestest thing. I don't know how many LEDs come in the pack, but this is hardware. We can just stick them on. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad I found another LED theme. I like LEDs. They are really awesome. Have you done any of the wearables? So anyone that was at Ruby Decamp last year may remember that I was actually wearing an LED strip around myself as like a utility belt while we were out in the forest. But that's as far as wearable stuff has gone that I've built so far. Hopefully it kept you from getting lost in the woods. It did because it was really scary in the middle of an American forest as a foreigner. Not just as a foreigner. Um, but oh, you city thing, kids. One <laughs> One wearable thing project I'd like to build, so I've got all the components, I just haven't got around to doing it yet, which I think would be fun for, for kids and grown-ups alike, is using something called EL wire, which is like this phosphorus wire that when you put a current down it, it will, it glows, and so you kind of look like a character from Tron. So the idea I'd like to do is build that connected to an Arduino with a sound sensor so it can pulsate on and off uh, to music. So while I'm getting my groove on at the local discotheque, I can be glowing in neon colors. That sounds pretty awesome. I'm curious, Julian, we were talking about, you know, kids and hardware hacking. you have any experience with Lego robotics? As a child, no, because we couldn't afford the Lego robotic kits because they were too expensive. And so I've then not played with them as an adult. But I know people that have, and, and they're really fun. But I think, I guess, like most things, it can be quite expensive buying that kind of stuff because it's all sort of pre-made and but yeah. there are apis to them that you can control them with ruby which is much more fun than using the kind of out-the-box things that they come with i think 
Right, as I recall, they actually use um, a drag-and-drop programming interface um, that's based on LabVIEW, of all things, for writing programs in Lego Next. I oh, think that the, idea, fun. the idea there is that, you know, kids kids can't work with words, they can only work with pictures, right? I think that's true for everyone, right? That's actually really cool. I've actually, I've, I've used LabVIEW in the past, and the neat thing about it is that you are, in, in most programming, we think of things in terms of, like, sort of one thing at a time, whereas in LabVIEW, you're plugging inputs into out, or, you know, outputs into inputs. You're basically, you're plugging streams into processors, uh, streams of events into processors, and so it's, it's much more, it's sort of higher level. You're thinking more about, you know, how am I going to react to this stream of events, and how am I going to maybe combine that with another stream, or filter it down, or, uh, or something like that. LabVIEW is created by National Instruments. I actually got, my first web job was at National Instruments back in the 90s, and um, a lot of their focus is on data acquisition and signal processing, which I guess is right at, right up the alley for this sort of hacking, where you're you're dealing with signals, you're turning things on and off, you're dealing with data acquisition from sensors and so on. Yeah, uh, working with with LabVIEW connected to hardware is one of the places where I first learned to hate hardware. What? Why did you hate hardware? So if you flip the uh, the experience, see, this is sort of where I got my start. Um, I was doing a lot of um, embedded stuff. And things like building test sets for embedded boxes and stuff like that, controlled by LabVIEW and whatnot. And the the experience for me at the time was I just spent, you know, three weeks coding something, and my payoff is that I got a, an LED to light up. Woo. <laughs> hey, hey, so LEDs I, are awesome. So I came in from the the other. I I came into web programming because I was like, okay, I'm I'm tired of of dumping all this time into making an LED light up. I want to make something real happen. Real being a very subjective term there. Yes, that's the uh, point I'm trying to make here. So it is very does that subjective. kind of boil down to because it's hard? Hardware is a lot harder than it wasn't so much because it was hard. I think it was more that I mean it gets to you know what you want to get done. Having started out there, I didn't find the, you know, the payoff of getting an LED to light up that exciting. But, you know, if the only thing that you've ever done is get, you know, web pages to render, then I think that making an LED light up could be super exciting. Um, and I think I might be getting to the point where, where that might be exciting for me again, especially now that I have kids. I think one of the problems that I run into with hardware hacking is that the physical world isn't nearly as neat and tidy as Boolean logic. There are actually laws of physics that come to bear that can be very problematic sometimes. Lots and lots of laws of physics, unlike flipping bits. The predictability is something that I really enjoy about programming, like, software. Usually, if you run it with the same inputs, you get the same outputs, but that doesn't seem to happen with hardware. Not at all. Yeah, that's the crazy thing that sometimes I like, depends if I'm trying to show this to 400 people at a conference, the fact that... It was working a minute ago. I have not done anything different, and now it's not working. <laughs> Heisenbugs in hardware. But it's fascinating, and it's fun and exciting. And I was with you there at the I, I, you know, got bored of my Arduino before, and then I just found something about hardware that I love. That just being able to create something physical out of nothing, not nothing, out of a various cornucopia of hardware that I have lying around into something fun and exciting that, that people actually enjoy to use. What does your workshop look like right now, Julian? Everything is still in my in my luggage from the conference last week. Turns out you can fit a lot into a, 
average size suitcase. Oh, what does it typically look like though? So imagine a nice, neat, organized cabinet where everything in its right place. It's not anything like that. <laughs> there are random wires and sensors and cables everywhere and all of the cables mixed in together. And so I normally just pull things out to do the kind of de- work on my current demo and then just throw them back in the box. And so it's not very organized. But I do have lots of fun toys to play with, though, so that's always good. So you mentioned that Rubyists don't seem to be excited as, as excited about hardware as people in the JavaScript and Go communities. Why do you think that is? I don't know, and I really wish I did. Like I did a talk last year in Barcelona doing hardware stuff, and, and I know people there enjoyed it, but I haven't seen any follow-through from Rubyist saying, hey, I've gone and bought this Arduino, now I've gone and written a whole laser light show. And maybe it's just because Ruby is harder to run on embedded devices. So like, you can install it on the Raspberry Pi in the BeagleBone Black, but people don't tend to do that. What makes that harder? I don't understand. I guess it's because it's a little bit slower on these devices, but you can run JRuby or Rubinius or even MRI on a Raspberry Pi and once you've compiled it and installed whichever Ruby version you want, then you're good to go. And then with creating all these fun projects, I'm just not sure what, maybe something scares Rubyists about this, or I'm not sure. I really wish more Ruby people would do this, because it's super fun. I think there may be a perception that it's very time-consuming. I may be projecting. It's definitely time-consuming. I don't have any time anymore for things, because everything is hardware in my head all the time. But you have robot friends. Do you mean real ones or, or ones that I've built? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you have any, um, speaking of robot friends, do you have any robots that are, that are cohabitating with you that you sort of leave on all the time? No, I tend to pack everything away because I don't yet have enough hardware to have permanent installation at home because I would like to do complete home aut- automation, but I haven't got around to that yet. So I tend to just plug things in, play with them and then put them away even though I have more hardware than most people do, I think, currently. The other day, I was at Philly ETE, and Tom Igo spoke, one of the creators of the Arduino. One of the things he talked about was how these microcontrollers that are cheap and anybody can program, they let us build hardware that is designed for a single person. Do you enjoy uh, designing the, the hardware and creating the software for it? in a very customized, just-what-you-want way? Or do you have ambitions of building a product with this? I would love to build and become like the hardware person that has a whole portfolio of hardware projects because some of the demos and things that I've built and I know other people have built would be really fun to have as a product. Like A friend and I built a Raspberry Pi and iBeacon-controlled soda machine so that you could dispense fizzy drinks using your mobile phone, which I'm sure people would buy and want in offices up and down the country. As opposed to, like, walking up to the thing and pushing the button. <laughs> yes, because imagine a scenario where uh, your vending machine had fizzy drinks in one section and alcoholic beverages in the other. Uh, if it was internet-connected, you can connect it up to your uh, CI server so that when the tests are failing, you can only get uh, caffeine-filled beverages. But when the tests are passing, party time. I like, I like the way you think. <laughs> I don't think the test's passing would be a stable state at that point. 
<laughs> this is true. I haven't it's, yet. It's a feedback system. It's a stable state of oscillation, right? That's true. And and that kind of thing, the sort of, you've got the digital environment of whether your tests are passing, affecting the physical environment of what the soda machine dispenses, and then you've created the feedback loop from the human to the code to the physical to the human. Yes, Skinner would love that. So speaking of interfacing with humans, I'm curious, have you done anything with cameras and, like, recognizing stuff? Um, I've played a little bit with OpenCV. So there's a great R2 demo where you can get the drone to follow you if it detects a face, which is kind of cool. Although I have seen a, someone at one of the NodeCopter events I was running did the reverse of that, that when a drone sees you, it runs away, which was really fun. But I haven't done any like object detection or anything like that. I have this dream of computers that will be able to figure out that I'm frustrated from looking at my face, and they'll they'll adjust accordingly. So dim the mood light, uh, dim the mood light lighting, and have a little robotic Hoover come along with a with a beer. <laughs> exactly. You know, kick on the uh, the robotic massage chair. This all sounds possible. This is what's great about these frameworks is that it's kind of like a single entry point for coding and. You just need to change a little bit of code to be able to talk to like a whole cornucopia of devices. I suppose like a good few years ago where you'd have to be an expert on how to program for a Roomba, how to program for a soda machine, how to program for flying drones. Is there anything that's coming down the pipe that you're interested in, something, some like hardware that's on the horizon? There is a $9 computer that I've just backed on Kickstarter that is going to be very exciting that has some RAM, a processor, and HDMI output, which at $9, you can afford to give that to a child and say, hey, program this. If it breaks, doesn't matter. It's only $9. Hmm. That does sound really cool. What is that called? Do you know? I saw that recently. I can't remember the name. Uh, it's called the chip. So I think there's, like, dots in between all the letters. Uh, okay. That's, That's not really good for SEO juice. So, Julian, I've seen one of your, um, I've seen lots of your demos in the past, and uh, I noticed in one of the videos that's up, I think on YouTube, that you were actually controlling a drone by connecting to it via Wi-Fi. Yeah, so the Para-AR drones are a Wi-Fi hotspot, so you connect to them, and then you send it commands over UDP, and then if it feels like it, it does the things you've told it to. <laughs> Is that pretty typical, or are there possibilities for ad hoc networking and sort of, you know, high behavior to emerge from interconnected networked things? So with the, this particular drone, you can make it join your own network and control multiple ones at the same time. It's just it's a bit of a faff, especially if you want to just do a quick demo talk. So we have got, multiple, I think it was like 12 drones we had in the event in Bath, where we got them to dance to, oh, what's that song called? Where everybody goes crazy and... It could identify so many. Yes, it's true. So you can get multiple ones to talk to each other, but it's uh, for a quick demo, it's it's really difficult. But there are other... So I've got a um, Sphero, which is a small robotic sphere with LEDs and a, and a motor, and you can you connect those via Bluetooth, and so you can connect multiple ones up together. And the hybrid group who wrote R2 have written an amazing demo that's made Conway's Game of Life using Spheros. Wow. That's expensive. That is something I would love to see. So we have a Sphero. I got one for my seven-year-old. And, okay, we had never got around to programming it because the darn thing is really awesome just by itself with the little phone controller. But it can totally, like, flash lots of different colors, and it can jump, and it can spin. It can totally dance and would be great to hook up to the party button. Well, let's do it. 
What programming language do you want to do it in? Well, I was planning to use Clojure because Karen Meyer recommended this Vera to me. She had one on the stage in her Strange Loop keynote last year, and she spent much of the demonstration chasing it around so it would to try to get it to not fall off the stage. It's not the most controllable robot, I think. Yeah, most of these robots definitely have minds of their own. Uh, I did see that talk. It was amazing because they were controlling multiple devices um, using open sound control to get them all to dance together, which was just so fun. It was. So what programming languages can you use on a Sphero? By the way, they're like a hundred and something dollars, and they make great toys, even if you never get around to programming them. Well, you can use R2 and uh, Cylon.js and GoBot. I know that for sure. I don't know about Clojure, what the framework is there, but I know there must be one. Yeah, Karen has created one, I think. And I think some people have been making some Python frameworks as well recently to control all the robotic things. So what are some un- other interesting hardware pro- uh, projects that you've seen carried out by other people, maybe in the Ruby community? If any of you have ever seen uh, Tenderlove uh, giving a, a conference talk, he often talks about his homemade sausages that he has. And I know for a fact that he has upgraded. So he, he was originally controlling those with an Arduino and I think now he's upgraded to an Intel Edison, which is like a postage stamp size microcontroller. And so that's a really exciting project that he's doing. And, and this, not knowing the ins and outs of what he's done, but I know for a fact that he'll only have like a temperature sensor, humidity sensor, a relay to turn things on and off again. And so it's not much of a leap from switching LEDs on and off. I have a friend who's really into home brewing, and he has a complete Raspberry Pi set up for monitoring temperatures and actually even measuring specific gravity of the brew at various stages. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, this is what I love is that it's it's only your bank account and your imagination that's holding you back from building all of these cool hardware things. Which is funny as a software developer, realizing why we all do software and not hardware by default is that when our code breaks, we just delete it and rewrite it. When my hardware breaks, I have to go on Amazon and, and, and reorder it, which can be a bit of a pain. But That is okay. really satisfying about code, the speed of experimentation and the low cost of it. That, uh, that brings up an interesting question. For the kind of stuff that you work in, is there anything like a simulation environment, like emulators, or is it all pretty much you try it out on the hardware? There's a really cool project called VoxelJS, which you can control a AR drone in like a Minecraft type environment. So that's kind of the only thing that I've ever played with when trying to practice this stuff. But half the time, I either just don't connect up my hardware and then just output to the console what I think it should be doing. So especially when I want to fly my drones in a, in a conference and I've only got my hotel room to practice in, I've realized that flying a drone in the hotel room is not the best idea. So the lobby is frowned upon, yeah. Well, actually, the last time I was flying a drone in a hotel lobby, I had a bottle of water thrown at me by a protester. So, yes, definitely don't do that again. Were they protesting you or something else? It was at the Drones and Aero Robotics Conference, so I guess they were just protesting drones, but as I happened to have the closest one to them, they decided to take aim at me. It's dangerous being a hardware hacker. Yeah, but then you get to become super elite. <laughs> but 
yeah, LEDs work brilliantly because, like, especially on the AR drone, it's got four motors and they've all got LEDs. And so what I tend to do is just switch those on and off when I want to say, is it going left? Is it going right? And so that's kind of the test harness I use for that. Oh, cool. That and a thing to detect electricity box. Yes, that's the word I was going for. That's very useful now that I've bought one of those. Do you wind up using, like, um, oscilloscopes or logic analyzers or anything like that, or is it just your basic voltmeter? Just a voltmeter. I haven't upgraded yet to an oscilloscope, but that would be so cool because there's such some great YouTube videos on the different waves that you can get off of things and all the cool things you can do with that. But I haven't it. yet got around to that. It's a trap. <laughs> Once but, you have oscilloscopes, you're officially a mad scientist, I'm pretty sure. Do I get a lab coat then? Because I've only got my tweed jacket so far, so I don't know if that makes me a mad scientist yet. Do they make lab coats in tweed? If they don't, I'm going to have to get one. <laughs> Julian, was there anything that we didn't cover that you would like covered? Well, I could talk for like many more hours about robots, so <laughs> I don't know. It's probably best to stop me. Okay. All right, well, let's get to picks. Jessica, do you want to kick us off? All right, so I do have a pick that I don't think we've picked on Ruby Rogues yet, and that's kind of sad because it's super important. Uh, it's Jacob Kaplan Moss's keynote from PyCon quite recently, and it's a beautiful keynote in which he talks about the dichotomy that we perceive between elite developers and crummy developers um, and how, as a community, sometimes we think that if we're not putting all our time into programming, then we're going to be one of them. We're not going to be a 10x developer anymore. But that's, it's a false dichotomy. And really, we're all somewhere near average. It's a bell curve. Most of us are in the middle. And once we embrace that, then we can, you know, we can choose how much time to put in and we can bring other people up a little bit at a time to where we are as we move forward in our learning. It's a fantastic keynote. Highly recommend. We'll provide the link in the show notes. That's my pick. Great. How about you, Abdi? I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about picks this time, but um, I'll pick a new piece of hardware that I got. Um, I've, for various reasons, both as an author and as a reader, I've been getting increasingly frustrated with the uh, the Amazon Kindle ecosystem. They're doing some some nasty strong arming and and lock-in stuff that goes way above and beyond just plain old DRM and DRM is bad enough and they they do some like serious Microsoft style embrace and extend of of standards and stuff like that it's it's nasty so i've been kind of getting increasingly uncomfortable using my Kindle e-reader um and buying books on that ecosystem even though it's incredibly easy and cheap and all that stuff so the other day I ordered myself a Kobo, I think it's an Aura H2O. It's definitely an H2O, which is like their top of the line reader. And I have to say it's really nice. It's e-paper, you know, e-ink display, a high pixel density e-ink display, beautiful screen, um, you know, easily up to anything that, that the top of the line Kindles can do. It's a 6.8 inch screen instead of the, the typical 6 inch, so it's a little bit more reading area. I like it. Um, it works well. One of the nice things about it is that, is that it's relatively open. I mean, you can use the Kobo store, but you can also export both your DRM'd and your not DRM'd EPUB files onto it uh, directly. And EPUB is the industry standard uh, Amazon refuses to get on board with, or actually that they have embraced and extended um, in their KF8 format. 
And uh, so, like, you know, I had books that I bought on the, the Google Store, and uh, it's a little bit of a hassle, but I was able to actually transfer them onto this e-reader. It's not just stuff from the, the Co you know, the locked-in Kobo store. Um, and, of course, anything that I bought from, like, the Prags works fine because their stuff is all non-DRM'd. Uh, so that's nice. It's also waterproof, which is nice because you can read in the bath or on the beach without worrying about, like, accidentally dropping in something. And the other cool thing about it is that it has built-in Pocket integration, which, if you're somebody like me who uses Pocket to handle, like, stuff that you want to read later from the Internet, uh, you've probably already gone out to the web page and started to order one because it's that cool. It just it syncs all your pocket articles, and you can read them on a nice e-ink display without the eye strain and distraction of reading on a tablet or something. So that's my one pick, the Kobo H2O. I have a, a single pick this week as well, and it kind of relates to the, the pick that Jessica gave. It's a talk by Liz Abenante called Unicorns Are People Too. It was given at last year's Madison Ruby, and it deals with the problematic dichotomy between hard and soft skills. Dives into what we mean by... Use, what we mean when we're using terms like that and the dangers that are sort of baked in when we break our thinking into a binary between hard and soft. Um, her main point is that while code comes relatively easily, it's soft skills that make us human, and these human skills are complicated and difficult to get right, and we need to spend more time on them. And she also asked the question of what we stand to lose by overvaluing technical skills to the exclusion of interpersonal skills. So I'll post a link to the video for that talk in the show notes. How about you, Julian? What are your picks today? Um, so I've got four picks, if that's all right. So my first one is something called Little Bits, which are these tiny little magnetic pieces of hardware. So you have like inputs, outputs, motors, and you can only connect them together uh, with the correct ordering due to the, the magnets and little plastic things. So they're just really, really small. And so it's kind of like Lego, but for hardware. And Little Bits create a... I've also uh, made a synthesizer that you can uh, wire up yourself with your kids and make synthesizer music. You can turn lights on and off, and they're amazing, so you should check out Little Bits. My other pick is Jewel Box by a lady called uh, Sarah Chips. It's basically programmable friendship bracelets. So she's currently still building these, and I think they're taking crowdsource funding, so you should definitely check out Jewel Box, but wouldn't it be amazing to have like a whole group of young people growing up being able to build their own hardware and, and wear it and interact in fun and exciting ways that we never really were able to? Um, my other pick was episode 156 of Ruby Rogues, which was about hardware, hardware hacking, which was a pretty good episode. So I really like that one. And my final pick is not computer related at all. It's a book I'm currently reading called The End of Mr. Y by Scarlett Thomas. It's a really, really good book. It's kind of about homeopathy and the troposphere and the ether and craziness that happens when you drink these homeopathic liquids. Awesome. Well, it looks like that's the show for this week, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much for coming on, Julianne. Thank you for having me. I remembered the uh, song that I was trying to remember earlier, if, if you're interested. What was it? Um, it's the Harlem Shake. So if you... Uh, Google Nodecopter Harlem Shake, you will see craziness what happens when you control multiple robots at the same time. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thank you to our panelists as well, and we'll talk to you next week. 
This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 